This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It's Meredith Carey, and you're listening to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. My co-host, Sally Arikoglu, and I have some big news. We're going on a break. Not forever, but just for the holidays. Our last episode of the year will be November 19th, and we'll be back with some great new episodes in 2020. The only way to ensure you're in the know about when we're back on air is to subscribe to Women Who Travel on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Women Who Travel for more updates, too. Lale, do you want to kick off the intro to today's chat? Today we're chatting with author Dina Nayeri, whose most recent book, Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You, chronicles both her own experiences as a refugee leaving Iran with her mother and brother in the 1980s and the stories of refugees in the present day, and asks us to question the ways we talk about the ongoing refugee crisis and the narratives we choose to listen to or not listen to. Thanks so much for joining us, Dina. Thank you for having me. So you left Iran when you were eight years old. Um, When did you first discover that writing and storytelling was a way for you to make sense of your own experience? Well, I think intuitively I discovered this very, very early on. I mean, I come from a storytelling culture, as you know, Lale. Um, I, I, you know, we Iranians are very, you know, we're we're storytellers. We love, you know, weaving together tales. We love trying to find, you know, ancient reasons for things. We love watching other people. And my family was very much like this. My grandfather was, you know, very well-known storyteller in, in our village and everyone would gather around him and tell stories. So I was drawn to that early on. And when I um, lived in the refugee camp in Italy, um, in Hotel Barba, which I talk about in the book, I just started to watch, you know, other people much more actively than I ever had before, mostly because I didn't have a life of my own anymore. You know, when I was in Iran, I was so busy with my own child world, I suppose, my family, my school, everything. But in a refugee camp, you have you know, nothing to do but wait. And I was right at an age where I was becoming interested in adults and their dramas. And so I I started to watch and I was fascinated. And, you know, it it became just a part of how, you know, as you say, I made sense of the world. But like the idea of becoming a storyteller as a profession didn't occur to me because, I had just fallen so far in social class and economic class. I was afraid. I, I was a doctor, uh, you know, ch- uh, a child of doctors in Iran. And then we went to a refugee camp. And then in Oklahoma, we were poor. We were seriously poor. So I became very obsessed with having security 
which is why I went, you know, a whole different direction in my career before my late twenties. When I said, no, I was put on this earth to do writing and to do storytelling. And I finally realized that, but that detour I think was because of, you know, the, the traumas of immigration and displacement. And so for listeners who might not be familiar with the book and with your story, you left Iran and you got to Oklahoma via Italy. But sort of what was that trajectory just for people that aren't familiar? Sure. So at eight years old, when I was eight, um, my family escaped Iran. We escaped rather dramatically on the back of a cargo plane, snuck on in the middle of a bomb raid. Um, so that's all described in the book. But um, we actually first went to Dubai, to the United Arab Emirates, because we had a short-term tourist visa there. Um, so the cargo plane goes to Tehran. We hid out for a while, and then we got these uh, visas and we left. Um, but, you know, it was short-term visa, visas for, for tourist visas. And so we had planned to kind of blow through them and become undocumented. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and there we applied for asylum. We applied for refugee status through UNHCR. And that organization took us to Italy and put us in a refugee camp. So there we lived for, um, you know, in total, we were refugees for 16 months, um, Dubai and then Italy. And then from there, we did interviews with various you know, Western countries at the embassies, and we were taken by the American government and sent to Oklahoma. And there I grew up until I was 18. And then I left when I went off to college. And you're currently right now calling from Paris, a street, a street yes. side in Paris. <laughs> I am in a little alleyway in Paris where I now live and I have misjudged, you know, where I would be at three o'clock. So I'm in an alley. Um, I'm it's a very Dina thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am wondering, you know, when you're talking about how you were watching people's stories and and have been talking to people for so long about their own stories, how much of a challenge when you were writing the book was it to weave your own story and own history into the others around you? Um, you know, it, it was it's a, it was a challenge, but an incredibly rewarding one. I enjoyed it so much more than I thought I would. It, and getting other people's stories and, to try to, and trying to tell them in, you know, a Western way, which I'll get to in a minute, um, was something that I thought would be the biggest challenge of, the, of, of writing the book. I thought it would be hard and, and grueling. I thought people wouldn't be willing to tell me their stories, and then I wouldn't be able to, you know, translate them in the right ways. But um, none of that proved to be true. People were generous with their stories. They were, it, it was almost as if there was, they, it was this treasure and it was the last thing that they had left and they were desperate for someone to take it and make something of it. Um, you know, the way they told it to me was with such passion and such, you know, sense of safekeeping, like, will you take this story to the West? And I, I would warn them about things. I'd say, you know, this might be in newspapers, this might be in a book, like, are you okay with that? And they said, please tell it to everyone. And I, you know, I felt so much responsibility and pain hearing them say that because your story is the, the, the big final thing that you have left. And some of these stories were harrowing. But then, you know, after I went back to my home, um, you know, back from the refugee camps and I sat down and started to listen to the tapes and look at my notes, um, you know, I, I started to be afraid again. Can I translate these properly? Because the way that they, the stories were spoken were very much in the Eastern way. They were told to me in Farsi. And it's not just an issue of language, right? I mean, storytelling is so deeply, deeply cultural. And the way that the stories were told to me were in the Eastern way. And it's not in a, told in a way that would be moving to a Western audience. I'm the one who had to do that job, who had to translate it according to everything I had learned with my Western education. And I thought of that as 
the the part that I would be playing, the the thing that I would be bringing to the table, the value I would add here. And I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to do that well. But as, as I as I started to write, I realized, you know, just I I mean I have retained a sense of what Iranian stories are trying to do. And it does come so naturally to me now to, to write stories in the Western way that once I retold the stories and I put them in the page in my own words, it, it, it was a joy and it was a, a complete pleasure, perfectly natural. And, and I knew instinctively what I needed to keep and what I needed to keep, like make implicit. There was this uh, lawyer in Amsterdam who told me, kind of joked around with me about how every Iranian client that he has talks for ages and ages, as I'm doing now, said Iranians have all the time in the world to tell a story. And if you ask an Iranian to tell their story, they won't start you know, at the beginning, or they won't start, you know, where the action is. Um, they won't even start at the beginning of their lives. They'll start at the beginning of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. It's true. We all learn storytelling with a little rhyme that in Farsi, we tell at the beginning of every story that we, you know, that we tell it. And that rhyme is the beginning of the universe rhyme, you know? And so it's this instinct. And then, and then as we go through the story, we have been trained to fill it with all kinds of you know, descriptions of our emotion, of what's going on in our heart, lots of very, very melodramatic, you know, similes on top of similes on top of similes, you know, bringing old stories in and, you know, just things that to the Westerner would seem almost false in its in its melodrama and in its, you know, I guess, just making ex- explicit particular emotions. And so what I felt I had to do is kind of go back and research the actual physical realities of the lives of these people. Sometimes they tell me a whole story in 10 minutes and then spend two hours talking about how much that story hurt, you know, or, and then I would try to pick out little details that they told me in terms of the five senses, like what was happening physically. And then I would go back, ask more questions and then do tons of my own research about what was happening in that time and place, what it looked like, what it smelled like, you know, and, 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 you know, layering in what I know of those cultures and kind countries to make the story come alive in the Western way, which is very much rooted in the physical, in the five senses, none of the abstract, you know, pontificating and all of that that Iranians like. And so to clarify, you, um, when you were researching this book and you were finding these present day refugee stories to kind of Mm -hmm. interweave around your own, um, where did you go? Where did you travel? Um, I went to a couple of refugee camps in Greece. Um, there was one in Katsikas outside of Ioannina, which was particularly interesting place to be because it was actually a beautiful place next to the mountain and next to a tourist uh, destination. Ioannina is a town people, tourists go, you know, to visit. And, uh, you know, this refugee camp was just a little bit off, out of town, you know, just far enough that the refugees couldn't really have easy access. Um, and and the, there, you know, people were living in shipping crates on an open field. Then I went to another one in LM Village, which is also in inland Greece. And the reason I went there is because this was a refugee camp that was built out of an old holiday resort, which I found intriguing because my refugee camp was built out of an old hotel. And so the idea of like an old, you know, a place that was once used for pleasure and, you know, for leisure being converted into this place of refuge, um, it it intrigued me. I wanted to go back and see. And I had already gone back to see my own refugee camp and it had been converted back into a hotel. So I felt like I couldn't see the dilapidation and all of the, 
you know, um, the, the things that we experienced there, you know, viscerally when it was a refugee camp. Um, so, you know, I, I heard about this place and I really wanted to go and see see what it was like now when people were living there. And it was very moving, exactly what I expected to find. And, um, and then I also went to a couple of cities in the Netherlands and in Germany and in, in England, just looking for communities of undocumented and, you know, rejected asylum seekers, you know, and, and, and I was chasing up some particular stories too. So I went looking for people in the stories I was looking for. Do you sometimes wake up with the desire to understand the seen and the unseen forces guiding you through this life? And are you ready to begin uncovering the impact of these forces in your day to day? Do you feel that you could use a little push, a little umph, or maybe even a little juju to be reminded of your power within your ancestors to truly understand you? Well, child, so it sounds like you need a little juju podcast in your life. Hey, bays, I'm your host, Juju Bay. Welcome, Aquaba, bienvenidos to the Womanist Witchy Insight Show, diving deep into the Black healing journey, pop culture juju, and the ancestral spiritual systems that can help get us free. So please come on over and join the ALJ Pod family. New episodes drop every single Wednesday, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tyres, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. I want to go back to something that you said a little earlier, which was that because you had been living in the US and studied in the US and then been living in Europe, you had the ability to tell a story in a Western way. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a sort of two-pronged question. But firstly, did you find when you were listening to their stories that you listened to them differently from how you did as a child living on a refugee camp? And then I wanted to also bring up the fact that, you know, when we were talking a few weeks ago, you mentioned how here in the here in the West, we always seem to just be interested in the story of escape and the, the mm-hmm. drama of escape. And then people lose interest once that part of the story is over. Uh, so I wanted to know the stories that they wanted to tell. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the way that I was listening to the stories, um, 
you know, it was very different and much more complicated, not just because I was an adult, and not, but because my experience was, was, you know, so far into the past. And also because I was writing a book, because I felt the sense of, you know, responsibility. So this is part of the reason I taped so many of the interviews, because I wanted to be able to be present and to listen at the time that they were telling them to me to react, you know, and, and I tried so very, very hard not to interrupt. But, you know, you're, when you're there, even even when you're there to write a book, you know, once your recorder is on and you're kind of assured that the story will be captured, you just become human. You just become a listener. You know, you 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 become wrapped. You stop them and, and you ask for something again, you know, and, and, and you get into the conversation. And in a way, that was a good thing. I realized that, you know, that rapport between us was very just uniquely Iranian. You know, we were just the Iranian women sitting around or, you know, Afghan and Iranian women sitting around um, just, you know, listening to, you know, a very moving, very, very powerful story over many cups of tea. And I think um, the fact that I was able to get into it in that way, um, exactly maybe as my mother would have, um, made the stories richer and better, made the people more forthcoming. Um, but of course, that wasn't how I listened to the stories when I heard them for the second time, third time, fourth time, as I listened to the tapes. You know, then I was listening for every tiny physical detail. I was looking for locations for years, for things that I could look up and and enrich further with research, you know. Um, but it was also all of that listening was different from when I was a child, because when I was a child, I was nothing but curiosity. I just wanted to know, like, how adults lived and why they did the things that they did. And, and most of the time I wasn't allowed to be listening. So I was, it was all covert and I couldn't ask questions. And, and it, it's actually, it's a sort of listening that I think is very, very important to preserve, you know, but uh, um, that curiosity, that wonder, that sense of, you know, marveling at things and seeing them for the first time. But of course it becomes layered with more complexities, you know, especially if you're writing other people's stories. Um, and then the second part of your question was about how, you know, Westerners want particular stories. And I think there's a difference between kind of the simplistic way that a lot of people in the West ask for the story. They only know to ask for the escape story, you know, and um, and what they would enjoy if you just gave it to them. Because as human beings, we instinctively want the parts of each other's stories that are, you know, about change, about, you know, moments of, of loss, moments of love, moments where, you know, people just kind of crash into each other and change each other, right? And so it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter um, what circumstances those happen in. Those stories are moving simply because they have power. You know, in, in my program at Iowa, uh, my teacher, Charlie Baxter, said that the important stories, the good stories, are the ones where something happens to, like, tilt the earth on its axis, you know, for somebody. And, you know, there is no undoing what has been done. That person's life is forever changed, right? So when people approach refugees, they think that maybe the only moment like that in their life is their escape. And all I'm saying is that's not true. There's a lot of moments in their life, in their lives um, that could move you in exactly the same way because they are full human beings and they want to be fully realized human beings in their life in the West, right? Which means having all of their stories explored, having the opportunity to talk about every aspect of their lives and to get to know people, you know, in many dimensions. Yeah. So just exactly as we get to know each other, I suppose, if we're just ordinary neighbors. So, but, but, but I think, so it's not a question of the Westerners that, you know, Western listeners instinctively want other kinds of stories. It's more like they only know how to ask for the escape story. Um, sometimes I think because it's the most obvious one to ask about. 
I'm curious what you think other questions people should ask, especially when it comes to, you know, your book asks us to turn away from this narrative that refugees should be grateful. Um, Yeah. I'm curious what other questions you think people should ask that like push the boundaries and push us past that kind of like concept. Yeah, I think, you know, I'll tell you a story that that indicates that because I went to these refugee camps looking specifically for people's stories of escape and people's stories of displacement. And like I had said that to them and I went and sat down with them and people were telling me, you know, what had happened to cause them to run. Well, there was this one woman and she starts talking, you know, and in the middle, she just kind of casually mentioned that she had recently married someone and she had met him over the phone. And, you know, she had actually met him after she was in the refugee camp. Someone had introduced her to this man by the, by phone and they had had a courtship over the telephone and um, and they had recently married. So um, she kind of glossed over that. And at one point I kind of turned and I'm like, wait, tell us about that. And she said a few things. And then I said, but what did he say? I kept coming back to that. And she just kind of started laughing because she thought I was being so very, very, you know, mischievous to ask her about her love affair, <laughs> like to ask her about like the details of like, what did he say? You know, but then I, I suddenly realized that was a moment where I was just viewing her. I suddenly became curious about her as a real woman. You know, I didn't care anymore about the displacement. I wanted to know how that man got her to marry him over the phone. That's so interesting, right? I'm like, who um, is this want- guy? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I wanted to know what she wore and like how they got married and who was there and all the things you would ask a, you know a person in ordinary life because I just, it just there was this realization that that was an important moment in her life so what should people ask I mean they should ask about their lives you know the things they loved the things they enjoyed doing what was their purpose in life before they were displaced everyone every adult has spent a lifetime you know nurturing talents and creating a purpose for themselves. Um, And when you're displaced, that gets lost real quickly along with your identity. So it's nice to be asked, what did you do? What did you love? What did you contribute to the world? I mean, people like to talk about those things. What was your family like? What was your community like? What did you celebrate? What did you eat? You know, I think these are the ways we get to know each other just as people. And, and, you know, the skip story is a big one. It'll come out on its own. And so... You know, once you were based in the US and then like went off to college and started traveling and, you know, nurturing your own talent as an adult and having all these, you know, new experiences, which also meant travel. Um, Yeah. (laughs) How do you think that your relationship to travel and crossing borders was impacted by your experiences? And how do you think it's evolved since then? Yeah. When I when I first left Iran, you know, when we, when we went to Dubai, you know, that first time, it was the first time I'd really left the country. Um, and, oh no, actually that's not true. I had gone to London a couple of years before with my parents for a wedding and that's where my mother became a Christian. So leaving that first time to go to another country had basically changed our lives. And then the second time we left, it changed our lives again. You know, Um, sorry, just just to chime in quickly, um, the significance of your mother becoming Converting to Christianity was what caused you to become refugees, correct? Exactly, because we went to London when I was five years old. My mother became a Christian. She came back. She started proselytizing. She got herself in tons of trouble. She was then accused of apostasy, and we had to run because she was going to get executed because apostasy is, you know, a a good reason to be executed in the Islamic Republic, you know? So 
So basically, uh, we became refugees because she was a convert. And, and the second time we had left, suddenly, you know, again, life had changed. But I think what that did for me in the long term is to make me realize that even when you have the most massive kind of move and displacement, life isn't over. You know, it's, it's okay. I mean, it's a big deal, but it's not... Your life doesn't end, you know, um, and so movement just suddenly became possible. It's, it had an exciting element to it because my mother was very careful about telling me and my brother that this was an adventure, that we would be saved, that God would save us. And so we should look at it as a chance to really, you know, experience another part of the world. And so because that was put in our minds at an early age, um, you know, I, I became very, very um very prone, I guess, to movement. I, I can't sit still. So, you know, I became, I fell in love with, with moving about and I definitely shed all fear of it. And and I also became a little bit addicted to it because we moved to Oklahoma after all of that displacement. And then we were stay, we were there for like, you know, seven or eight years before I moved to, to, to university. And by then I was really itching to get out. You know, I, that was not a life I had chosen. And suddenly we were kind of stuck in one place again for a while. And so um, I think, you know, by the time I was an adult, I was ready to live a life of constantly moving, experiencing new things, you know, but also not just as a traveler, just as somebody who has moved, resetting my life, remaking the space around me, finding the people who will be in my community, you know, finding how I'll live, what my rituals will be, how my habits will be very different. And I think what I was telling you last time, Wale, is that, is that you know, when... It's been too long since I've done that. I start to feel the stagnation coming on, and it starts to affect my writing because I, um, I think the, the the most important thing for you know to be a good writer, you have to be aware of all the detail, all the physical detail around you, and if that becomes stale, then you no longer really see it clearly, brightly. You know, when you move somewhere new and you start going through these new sets of rituals, you look around you and everything you know, everything pops, you know, details uh, present themselves to you that they wouldn't if you were just too accustomed to it, you know, and, and, and you suddenly have this wealth of detail to grab and write down in your notebook and, and you wonder about this place and that place. And it's a kind of bringing back that childlike curiosity and wonder that I was talking about, you know, early on, you start to listen and see and watch with wonder again, because the place is so new. And I like to reset that in myself and to bring it about again and again, which is why, you know, every two or three years in my adult life, I have moved, you know, to another city, to another country. And um, yeah, now I'm, I've just moved from London to Paris. <laughs> but, but, I, but I should say, you know, you asked about the evolution of this. Um, and it wasn't always like this. After I moved to college, I felt so very secure, so very much at home. You know, I was at Princeton and, and Princeton had been such a goal for me. And it was this, it represented for me the opportunity to remake my life and to not be poor, you know, again, and to have every possibility. So I wanted to stay there. I didn't even want to leave for the summers during that time. And in fact, the very first time I left the country after we had arrived in America was to go and do a summer internship in London the summer before my senior year. And I just, it, I went through so much, you know, psychological preparation to try to just get myself to be willing to leave the country, to go and get myself a passport. Um, you know, I knew I had to, I knew I didn't want to live a small life, but I was actually afraid of leaving America. You know, America had been refuge, it had been safety. Princeton was refuge and safety. And what the hell was I doing, you know, leaving? <laughs> um, I had these nightmares that in London, somebody would kidnap me and take me back to Iran. So, you know, I did that summer. Nothing bad happened. And, and I think slowly that's when I became a traveler. 
The run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. I'm I'm wondering, you know, when you're talking about going places where you find something new and it pops out to you, is there anywhere that you go back to when you travel that surprises you every time or do you switch it up every single time? Um, no, I, I like to go back to places that I've known and, and having and seeing it in new with new eyes and having it, you know, present itself to me in new ways. It's kind of like, you know, when you read a book you know, for the second or third time and a decade has passed and you suddenly see all sorts of new things, all sorts of new details because you're older. Um, my my uh, partner, um, he grew up going back, you know, to a particular little French village every summer. Um, his grandparents had had grown up there and his his mother had grown up there and then he grew up going there in the summers and so we started taking our daughter there the first time we went there I was pregnant and then we went there again when she was eight months old and then again when she was three and and each time the way I saw this village very much depended in on my own psyche you know like when I I, I was pregnant I wanted you know to nest and so I, I for me it was all about the interiors um, you know what the homes were like and the food and the, you know just filling myself with all the essence of that place eating all of the fruit and cooking a lot and and making jams <laughs> you know and uh, and that sort of thing and then but, but then when I went back and she was my daughter was three you know a little bit older to remember exactly how old um, it was it was very different you know it was about doing physical things and experiencing the nature of that place and maybe being brave enough to poke your head, you know, into parts of, parts of, you know, the community that you wouldn't go to normally, or, you know, going off the beaten path, you know, hiking somewhere into some wood or, you know, down some ravine or someplace you've never been because, you know, maybe you're not so scared at that moment in your life. So I think when I go back to places that I've loved, you know, especially if you, you stay there for a little while, they they bring back the part of you that wants to come out at that moment. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if you're ready to be braver, you'll be braver there. And if you're ready to nest, you'll nest there. If you're ready to, like, be reflective and just, you know, look at the same sky every night and write or read, then that's what you'll do. But that changes the place, you know. I, I think when you have a lot of free time in a place, um, you basically 
remake the space around you according to who you are. No? That's really beautiful. <laughs> but I think that was, I, I don't, you know, I, I should say, um, I, one thing that makes me sad is that I can't return to places that are actually, you know, really deeply generationally meaningful to me and to my family. I can't go back to Iran and have my own Iranian village present itself to me in a different way, the way, you know, my partner can with this same French village. And so sometimes I even go back to the French village angry because I think this isn't mine. You know, this isn't the place where I grew up, there's no pictures of me as a five-year-old here. The pictures of me as a five-year-old are in another village in a place I can't access. So that's sad. <laughs> and, um, you know, given that you can't physically be in Iran and physically return to those places, how do you mm -hmm. stay connected to them and how do you stay connected to Iranian culture in a wider sense? Yeah, well, you know, lucky, lucky for, I guess, those of us in the diaspora, there are many, many of us, you know, there's Iranian communities all over the world. And, um, you know, they're more robust or less robust or more, more westernized or less westernized, depending on where, where do you go. But I haven't really lived anywhere where I haven't had some access to other Iranians. Um, in that way, I've been very lucky. And, and they're, they're, in particular moments, I've made much more use of them. So for example, when I was getting a divorce and I was in Iowa City and I was just going through so much, um, you know, emotional trauma and I was so scared and very, very, um, very sad and I was just verging on depression. And I was also in Iowa City, which is, you know, a small town and it, and I, it was, you know, felt very foreign to me. Um, and, and during that time, I went and found the Iranian community there. And luckily, there were quite a few because it has a really good engineering school, I think, and, and takes, you know, uh, transfer students from abroad. And so there was a cohort of newly arrived Iranians. And it was so joyful for me to cook for them to see if they like my Iranian and food, to have them introduce me to newer music than I know, uh, to teach me slang, <laughs> you know, and laugh at my terrible accent. And, you know, and for me, that time spent with them was really just, you know, a way to remember all of these details from my childhood, but also a way to be in touch with the Iran of now, which I have no real access to, except for people who've come later, right? Um, the, the music and the culture and all of that stuff. So, um, so, yeah, that's a good way. And also reading, reading stories in translation, you know, talking with people who reach out to me on social media. Um, all of that has been a really good way to to keep connected. You know, I, I think one thing that makes me really marvel is the fact that my grandmother and all of the little villagers, you know, the, the, not little villagers, all of the villagers in the little village. You know, um, <laughs> it's a little village. The people are regular size. Um, <laughs> all, of, all of the villagers, um, you know, from that, it, this very old, old place where I, I often thought of it as going back a hundred years when we would go from Isfahan to this village because there was this old tanur and and all this like there's orchards and animals and women would get together you know and cook for 50 people and everyone would eat together and it was very old style living I think there wasn't even a television there um you know and not every house had electricity but now in the last few years people from that village can Skype, you know, they can, they, they're on social media, they're on Facebook and Instagram, like slowly more and more of them are following me on, on Instagram and Facebook. And it's so very, very cool to get messages. You know, I'm so-and-so from Ardestun, I'm your second cousin, your third cousin, you know, I'm your third cousin's daughter. You know, it's, 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 it's really fun. 
Um, <laughs> back to sort of what you were saying about um, how you know, visiting new places kind of takes you back to that sort of childlike wonder where everything is sort of electrifying and you notice details in new ways and yeah. see things in new ways. Um, has there been a travel experience or a series of them that have really shifted your perspective in some way? So this this was a very formative trip for me because after I got my divorce in 2012, uh, during that time when I was at Iowa, my mother had gone off to join the Peace Corps in Thailand. Right. And remember, like my mom and I, we had we had and my brother, we had come to America. We had spent decades trying to become American. My brother and my um, and me, you know, we pretty much succeeded. But I think it was really much harder for my mother to to become fully American. And we all got the travel itch. So for my mom, I think part of the answer was to return to the East to cultures that she was closer to. But she couldn't go back to Iran because of politics. And she thought of herself as American enough to be a representative of America. So she joined the Peace Corps. It was a very natural move. And in Thailand, she was put in a little fishing village and she very quickly took to life there. She was wearing fisherman's clothing with a big straw hat and, you know, the loose pants. And I would she had love this machete. to meet your mom. I would love <laughs> yeah. to meet your mom. My mother is quite something. So, so she's like, you know, she's get she's formed a community there, learning Thai, you know, teaching Thai children. You know, she was a doctor, so um, you know, she did, and she and she was into organic farming, so she was, you know, doing organic farming. She had this huge machete, and she was like cutting fruit with the machete. Just she just became of that village in absolutely no time. And um, and I went to visit her right after I had gotten my divorce. And I went to spend a month in Thailand. And this was a time when I was so raw, you know, and I was, I was raw because my whole life had just ended again. You know, here I was in another moment of displacement. And I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what my future life would be. And suddenly I was dropped in the middle of this very foreign place, you know, and everything just rubbed me the wrong way. You know, I, I felt, um, I felt too hot. I felt itchy all the time. I wanted to cry, you know, but then at the same time, I, I was able to see so many of the things because here I was for a month with absolutely nothing to do, but look and listen and to taste things and eat food and have my mother take me around and hear her talk in another language. And so suddenly after a couple of days of sadness, you know, I began to marvel. I began to think, okay, wow, you know, this is something I've never seen before. This is something I've never done before or something I've never tasted before. And who cares really what life I was in or what life I'm going to? The world contains all of this stuff that I don't know. And that alone is exciting. Um, my, my, my mom once, you know, during, as I started to become happier, took me to a fruit market, you know, and I kept asking her all of these questions about what the Thai fruits were. And she's like, you know, you've missed out on too much. So let's buy one of literally everything, sit down at the table, and I'll tell you what everything is. So we sit down and did like a fruit tasting. And as we were doing this, and my mother was t telling me, well, this is a rambutan, and this is a mangosteen, this is like a, you know, whatever, a liche or whatever. And, and, and um, you know, we're going through them one by one. People started to gather around because they realized, oh, this is, you know, a mother who lives in Thailand who's teaching her daughter about all the Thai fruits. And the, the, there was these girls who would stand there and they'd be like, try that one next. That one's my favorite. And I remember just like feeling this collective community joy around this activity. And the whole activity was made possible by the fact that I was new. I was a foreigner with nothing but interest and like just taste for more. And and it was the first time I won, you know, a big short story award. I won an O. Henry Prize for that one. And when I read back and read the story, and I think the reason that it's good is because 
it's got incredible sensory detail because I was doing nothing but marveling and because my character is doing nothing but marveling. It is a story about wonder, you know, and, and I couldn't have written it if I had just been living, you know, in the place where I got divorced, in the place where I lived my last life. I had to go somewhere new in order to be able to write a story like that. You know, funny enough, my mom hated that story. <laughs> she, she's like, why did you write about me? And I said, that's not you, it's fiction. And she said, you wrote about me and you lied and you called it fiction. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think I need to meet your mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, oh, and the funny thing is then, I, I thought I had won this debate when I won the O. Henry. And the, the, the judges, you know, each of the judges writes a letter about their favorite story. And Tessa Hadley wrote about my story. So I, I, my mom had been so upset about, you know, how that story was just lies about her and it made her look bad, even though the character was not her. And, and Tessa Hadley wrote about how the character was so brave. So I told my mom, I said, mom, I have a letter to read to you from Tessa Hadley. Can you first please Google her? So my mom Googles <laughs> her. And so then I read about how, you know, that character was so brave and how much, you know, she loved it. And then after I finished, my mom says, so? And I said, what do you mean, so? And she's like, so she's wrong. And I'm like, mom, no. There are people who have expertise in stuff. And this, and this. So that was a whole other argument. Uh, but she did say, she did say, you know, to bring us back to the point that, you know, she, she said, I do think you described the fruit very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that the fruit story is a perfect place to end this episode. Um, Dina, if people want to follow you and your journey on the internet, where can they find you? Well, I am on um, Instagram and Twitter under Dina Nayeri and, you know, and Facebook too. I, I'm everywhere. I have a website too, dinanayeri.com. Perfect. And we'll put a link to Dina's book in the show notes. Uh, you can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. You can find me at Lale Hannah. And we will talk to you next week. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane <coughs> and come home under the plane... You've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. 
Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.